It's Friday, and today, back from vacation to do live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. Today is Friday, July 15, 2022, and today, after an extended break for a summer vacation, we are back at it with live Q&A. Open phone lines, call in, talk about anything you want. your first time on a Friday Q&A show, welcome. We're glad that you are here. These shows work just like traditional call-in talk radio has worked. Uh, you call in, you ask me about anything that you want, uh, talk about any questions that you have, happy to talk about details of your personal situation, happy to opine on anything that you have questions on, anything you want clarifications, happy to hear any disagreements, anything that you want. I don't screen the calls. Uh, well, I don't screen the subjects of, this call, of the calls. I do screen the, sc- the calls in terms of publishing the phone number. If you would like to join me for one of these Friday Q&A shows, you do that by becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com slash radical personal finance. Search Patreon for radical personal finance, become a patron of the show, and that gains you access to the time and the phone number to be able to call in and join me on a Friday Q&A show. And by doing it that way, it simply allows me to make sure that I have uh, positioned things to uh, not be overwhelmed with too many calls. I try to handle anywhere from five to 10 calls on one of these Q&A shows. And if I didn't do that, I would simply have uh, far too many. We begin today with John in Pittsburgh. John, welcome. How can I serve you today, sir? Hey, Joshua. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, welcome back. Um, I, uh, I had a question about uh, opening a Canadian bank account. Um, thought it was going to be, I mean, pretty much seems to be the simplest. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of the early steps I can take to um, uh, getting uh, some, some money uh, out of the U.S. Um, but I, in, in calling around to the, the different banks I was going to go visit in the next few weeks, um, I noticed that a couple of them had mentioned the same thing, which is that it's not possible to do a direct, um, once I have the accounts open, it's not possible to do a direct bank to bank transfer from the US to the uh, to Canada. Um, instead, you have to wire uh, transfer the money. Um, with that limitation, do you still think it's, uh, I mean, it's probably still worth uh, having those accounts established and set up, but it kind of takes away from some of the ability to do um, frequent transfers just to get them used to seeing the money going back and forth. Yeah. Um, or, or maybe I'm just no, it, <laughs> it is a limitation. So each bank will have a different system, but you're dealing with an international bank and the international banking system is different than what you're accustomed to with the domestic banking system. So usually you will do a wire over the SWIFT uh, international uh, transfer system. And uh, so you'll do a wire or a lot of times banks can take checks and you can deposit banks by or you can deposit uh, funds via a check. So it is possible to use a Canadian bank account for your regular banking, depending on the specific bank and depending on the specific features that they that they offer you. So you want to ask them. But usually, usually it doesn't make a lot of sense to do frequent transactions with an international bank account because of the increased fees due to international transfers. So usually it makes sense to have just a few transactions and, you know, for example, at the most frequent, you might, again, if you if you have a, an account with check writing privileges, then you can write some checks and those will be cash based upon the 
the terms of the banks. Uh, you will find that because you're dealing with an international bank, if you, if you're dealing with an institution that is skeptical about checks, I know we're just kind of feels like we're in the 1980s here. <laughs> you do have an international, mm-hmm. it's an international account, so that's you're going to have less acceptance with your with your check systems. Um, your debit card will work fine, and so if you have a bank that has reasonable prices on international transactions, then the debit card can work fine. But usually, if you were going to keep most of your money in an, in an international account, then you would do something like keep your money there and then just pay your credit card bill once a month from it, things like that. Uh, what you can do is check to see if your bank will accept paper deposits. Every bank will be different. Sometimes, for example, you might have some of your checks sent there. Uh, sometimes you can just simply use the automatic bill pay function from your U.S.-based account and send a, a check that way. That can minimize the fees. But you are right. And so I don't think it makes a lot of sense to use uh, a an international bank account for day-to-day transactions. Uh, I think it makes sense to use a credit card for day-to-day transactions. And then if you really want to use the account frequently and not just have it as a savings device, then go ahead and set it up with um, just to pay your, you know, pay your credit card once a month. So it is the information that you have is correct. And the specifics will depend upon each specific bank that you interact with. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and, the, and to be clear, the only reason I'm, um, uh, looking to have more transactions or more frequent transactions both ways was just uh, for the sole purpose of just having them accustomed to mm-hmm. seeing transactions going in and out, um, not really for day-to-day uh, banking or anything like that. So, yeah. yeah, for that reason, I think I'm just going to go with pretty low-end um, checking and savings type uh, of account um, that has pretty limited withdrawals and stuff before you start racking up fees but if it's mm-hmm. just for uh, emergencies only that seemed to be sufficient so yep uh, and now that i can go to canada i figure i get that done exactly <laughs> and just and as always be aware in the international banking space you will incur significantly higher fees than you're accustomed to in the united states uh, yeah, and like it. <laughs> so it's just, you know, an account, a monthly account maintenance fee is an, is a, is an extremely normal thing in the space of international banking. It's fairly abnormal in the United States, but it's an extremely normal thing in international banking. Uh, so monthly maintenance fees, uh, various fees, the fees are simply higher in the international world, practically, at least in my understanding on a global basis, uh, as compared to the United States. I still think that's a cheap price to pay for the services that mm-hmm. you are getting. But if you are very fee sensitive, then it will impact you and you'll want to minimize those fees just through prudent planning. I don't think you need to do transactions on a, you know, on a multiple transactions per month basis. I think the most important thing to set up is to set up your wire transfer systems. If you're using a Canadian bank account as basically kind of a relief valve, a backup plan in case you had to get money out of the United States, then the key is just making sure that you know how to wire money, you know how long it takes, you have all the, the information handy so you could call up your bank and say wire fifty thousand dollars from my u.s account to my my canadian account and that you know how to do it and you know how long to expect that settlement process to take etc so you don't need to of course start with 50 grand the key is just go ahead and practice going back and forth so that when the time comes if you ever needed to do it that you can do it uh very quickly and with and you've practiced it yeah no that sounds good i appreciate that and that's exactly what i was going to do just put up uh, a minimum, minimum amount that, that uh, gets me 
you know, semi-free checking account yep. and uh, probably open up one for both me and my wife. Uh, so we both have some options there. Yeah, the magic yeah, number is to have enough money in the account that you don't wind up incurring fees uh, for based upon the account balance, but to have, if you want to min- minimize your reporting requirements in the United States to keep less than $10,000 uh, outside the country so you don't have to file the the extra disclosure forms. Uh, it's fine to file the disclosure forms, but if you keep less than $10,000 total uh, outside of the United States, then you can minimize those forms. We go to Lucas in New Jersey. Lucas, welcome. How can I serve you today, sir? Hey, Joshua. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I'm underway on the Mexican temporary residence process, um, and so I'm Pretty excited about it. I, I got the temporary visa, uh, so uh, I found out part of that um, is going to Mexico to actually get the card. And from what the the agent was telling me at the consulate, there's some some uh, requirements in there uh, about uh, time to renew the card within I think it was 55 days before expiration to get it to the three year. Um, but she also mentioned that it, it would be difficult to say at this point how long that process takes to go from the temporary resident visa to the card. So a little more, a little more complicated than I initially anticipated. And I know previously you had recommended using lawyers in, in the local uh, areas where you're planning to do any international uh, planning. Um, and so, one, uh, do you still recommend that using, using a lawyer for immigration purposes, even for Mexico, which is, which is pretty simple? Uh, comparatively, and two, are there any resources that you've used to find international services like lawyers, accountants, things like that? I, I'm, I'm a little sensitive to hiring uh, someone uh, for a service like that who, who I haven't vetted, uh, and I'm not sure how to do that internationally. Understood. So the answer, is, so just to clarify, at this point, you have gone to the consulate outside of Mexico. You've received the little paper sticker into your passport saying that. Correct. And you, now you need to go to Mexico for the Canje. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So, yes. So as I've, as I've said, in most things, you can do most of this stuff yourself. Most countries have some kind of system that you can go on their website, you can work your way through, you can set the appointments, and you can do most of these things yourself. So you don't need to hire lawyers in the world of international immigration. You can do it yourself. My experience, having done it myself and having hired lawyers, is that immigration lawyers or immigration consultants are worth their weight, worth every penny in terms of minimizing hassle and making stuff easy for you. So when I went to Mexico, I could, I speak Spanish. I'm perfectly fine. I could have gone and figured it out, but when you, but it's just so much easier to lose, use a lawyer who says, show up on this day and you show up, all the papers are signed. You show up, they walk you up to the immigration uh, official. You sit down, they walk in the other room because you're, you're, they're, they're not, anyway, they, they walk you up to the immigration official. The appointments are set up. The official has all the papers. Everything's taken care of. You sit there, you walk out 10 minutes later and you're done with the whole thing. Um, and that's worth so much more than trying to navigate the world of bureaucracy, especially in Latin America. There are some places where the bureaucracy is fairly streamlined. Um, so, you know, can you do Canadian Express entry yourself? You can. I still think you should use an, a consultant if you're, unless you're totally broke. Um, I think it's worth your time just to use a consultant, but you can do it a lot of it yourself. But if you compare the Canadian system versus the Mexican system, the Mexican system is so much more, the bureaucracy in Latin America is really, really intense. And so basically what you pay for with a lawyer 
is or a consultant is to make your life easy and to make all of your planning easy. And my experience, again, having done it myself and having not done it myself, I have promised myself that going forward, I'm generally just always going to use a lawyer. Because when I compare my experience with, I've done two programs with lawyers and consultants, and I've done one program myself. When I compare my experience in those areas, it's just night and day better with with a lawyer. So yes, I do still recommend it. Uh, and I can't tell you how to actually navigate the bureaucracy yourself if you want to do it, because it will depend upon a state by state basis, a city by city basis, and even an office by office basis. And it's very difficult to figure out what to actually do from the internet. Uh, you and I are generally fairly accustomed to doing everything online. But although there's been major modernization in many of the international immigration programs that you can do more things online, and in fact, they'll often require you to do things online, right? I'm sure you're, the Mexican consulate required you to establish a, a um, uh, an appointment online and all that stuff online. But when you try to do it online with systems that aren't fully self-explanatory and you're trying to do it in a second language and you're trying to interpret what the second language means in a, in a legal context to figure out exactly how to do it, it is complex. So the answer to your question, number one, do I recommend a lawyer? Yes, I do. If you hire a lawyer, right? I've had, um, uh, Miguel from San Miguel Legal on. If you work with him, San Miguel legal.com, um, or not, sorry, not Miguel, uh, uh, blanking on his name. Uh, but if you hire him and his firm, basically you send him all the stuff. He arranges everything in advance. You tell him the day that you're going to come to Mexico. You show up in Mexico. You go to the office. Uh, his team meets you there. You basically need to be there for two days, in essence. Um, and everything is just handled. And that it makes that makes the process uh, really, really simple. And that's why I recommend it. I think time you know, time is money and uh, the hassle is, is pretty intense. Now, if you are, if you were, and this is clearly not you, but if you were, you know, 22 years old and you want to live in Mexico and you're actually in Mexico and you're trying to, and you're, you can, you can go down to the office and you can talk to a person and they'll give you a brochure and they'll say, here, here's how you go through the brochure yourself. And, and, you know, step by step. Yeah, you can do it yourself totally. So I want to, be clear, it is totally possible to do yourself, but it's just hard to do yourself not being physically in the country that you're trying to, to accomplish the immigration process for. Number two, how do you find international services? Uh, I'd say the two common ways, number one is through a referral. If you know someone who you who has done something, has been happy with their service provider, that's usually the number one way. So, you know, when I make a referral at sanmiguel-legal.com, I'm pointing you and saying, hey, you know, th this is a good firm. They do a good job. Um, reach out to them. See if they can get in touch with them. Uh, that's the number one way. So if you have a friend of yours who's done it or you know someone who's done it, then that's a good way to get a referral. Or number two, I think it's perfectly fine to go with a firm that advertises their services in this way. There's not much of a vetting process necessary for this kind of thing, right? This is not like you're hiring a lawyer to defend you for a murder trial uh, where you've got, that's a much more difficult thing to do. This is pretty much a, a, a it's a, 
what's the right word, an administrative process, and it doesn't require a significant, it just requires experience. So if you find a firm that advertises, that they say, hey, I want to do Panama, and you search, uh, do a web search for Panama immigration lawyer, you'll find all kinds of firms. And if they just feel legit, and you talk to them, and they sound legit, I think that's that's good enough. And then what you can simply do is you can protect your, you know, search for reviews, of course, but um, it's a fairly straightforward business and you'll generally make a, an upfront payment of some kind and then you'll pay the balance uh, when the services are rendered and you'll be able to figure out whether the services are actually being rendered properly. So there's, it is harder to do due diligence, but if an outfit is advertising their services uh, they're holding themselves out as doing this work with a website and they are maybe maybe actually advertising somewhere and it feels normal, I think that's good enough. I'm not aware of this being an area of widespread fraud. Now, it is true that you will generally have a different service standard uh, with kind of local firms, right? So one of the, the classic things is, let's say you go into a totally new country and you say, I want to hire a lawyer. Well, you'll find the you'll find it a a um you will find that you're going to get a different service standard if you just kind of hire a guy because his, his shingle out front says lawyer but if but you can the, the 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 amount of work someone puts into their website is a good indication of their stability as a firm so i've hired four lawyers in the international immigration affairs on different things. And I've just done it based upon if I had a referral, I've used that. And I've done it just based upon personally, uh, uh, the website, finding them with a web search saying, Hey, this feels right. And going with it and haven't had any problems. Okay, great. Thank you. I, I may reach out to San Miguel legal and ask for referrals in certain areas that if I'm going to be spending a couple of days in, in Mexico to do this, I'd, I'd like it to be in an area that, that is particular to my interest. So mm -hmm. I'll start with that as a referral process. Really Absolutely. appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. We move on to Trey in Texas. Trey, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir? Hey, Joshua. Um, so I made a pitch to my wife two nights ago um, about her potentially taking a couple of years off from work and staying home with our one-year-old and the potential new kids that come along uh, during that time. And then the very next day, you dropped a new podcast that talked about how important it is to protect your income. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, uh-oh. Uh, so I kind of wanted to talk to, talk through that with you. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to share numbers if you want. Um, but how do you kind of weigh those two things um, against each other? And just, just, to, just to give you a real quick, you know, picture of our scenario. My my income uh, is more than sufficient to cover our lifestyle, assuming that we downsize from two properties into one, um, which is a perfectly reasonable uh, change to make. Uh, and then, um, yeah, that, that's basically it. So, you know, I'm fully remote, and I think it would make big quality life improvement if we didn't have to deal with two jobs where she's actually at a brick-and-mortar job. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we could downsize in one property for a few years, kids start going to school, then, you know, school district or, yeah. or whatever we're going to do based on that. So I think it's important to begin. My answer to your question is I believe the analysis is done from a different perspective. 
Financially speaking, I can't think of a scenario where I could argue to say that you're going to be financially, there is, I, I can, so let me, let me change what I'm saying. In most situations, if you have a dual income household and you turn that dual income household into a single income household, the, there's going to be a financial cost to that decision. You're going to have less money coming in the door. And unless there's an offsetting ability to increase income, then it's simply going to result in there's less income. We may have a lower lifestyle, financially speaking, and we may minimize our long-term wealth accumulation. The only way where that doesn't like work is kind of the classic high-performer profile. So if you look at when you have a family where, where someone is a very high performer, I always think about, um, I don't know, for whatever reason, years ago when I worked at Northwestern Mutual, I think he's still the CEO as far as I know. There was a guy named John Schlifsky who was the CEO, and he, ha- had, a, he had six children, and he was the CEO of this huge insurance company. It is not possible for a guy like John Schlifsky to be the CEO of a huge insurance company and to have six children unless his wife is a full-time mother. It's simply not possible. You cannot do it. You cannot maintain that much responsibility, have a C-level job, have a huge business or a huge job. You cannot do that and also be a parent unless you have a wife or I guess if it, if it could be either way. Um, unless you have a wife who is taking care of your children and who is managing their needs. Otherwise, your kids are going to be a nightmare. It's just a disaster. It's simply not possible. Now, does it make sense for, in that situation, again, I have no idea. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe John Schlischke's wife actually does have, you know, some high-flying high career as well. I, I don't believe, I don't know that, but I don't know what I'm saying for a fact. It's just, I always thought about him in this example. So if you if you try to maintain two incomes, then you can't do it if you're parents. You could do it as, as individuals without children, but you can't do it as parents because the the stress and the constraints of children are going to mean that you cannot deliver at the very highest level in a job. So if John and his wife were both trying to maintain these jobs, they would leave the house at six in the morning, they get at home at six at night, seven o'clock at night, see the children for an hour, and they would have to hire literally everything done for their children, and they would still get bad results because they wouldn't have any kind of relationship with their children. Now, if John can go to work and his wife is able to make sure that the children, you know, are properly kissed and get their teeth brushed when they're going out the door to school. And then when they come home from school, she can help arrange the taxi services to get them to their events, make sure their homework gets done, make sure she's there to listen to their successes and their failures, et cetera. That division of labor can work out really, really well for John and for his wife. In my example, you can have John make, I don't know, $15 million a year, $20 million. I don't know, you know, several million millions of dollars per year. And his wife can benefit from a multi-million dollar per year income. And her division of labor is that she provides the warm, loving environment for the children. And John is there a little bit at night and a little bit on the weekends, right? That's the common thing. And you see that. So if you go through 
the the C-level suites of big companies and find high performers. I don't think you'll find high performers who are parents who are at the very highest levels who who don't have a stay-at-home spouse who's able to take care of their children. It just doesn't happen. So if you so this is one of the big things. And again, I've had friends who have watched go through this this scenario. They're trying to build two careers and but they build two careers poorly because both people are struggling and they're trying to be good parents, they're trying to not and they can't really get that extra they can't put in that extra work that's necessary to go to the very highest levels in the corporate world because they feel the intensity of their duties in their family life and in their personal life, their marriage relationship, etc. So if you can have the division of labor, sometimes that can free you up to really um, invest in your career at a very high level, and you can make it to the top levels of management, to a seven- and eight-figure salary. You can build a business that's really big, etc., uh, I mean, even things like travel. Uh, travel is simply not possible. The kind of travel that's necessary for most high-level jobs, it's not possible if you if you don't have uh, a, a full-time mother to depend upon to provide the stability that the family needs. You can't have two people managing, you know, ten days of travel per month. It just it's it's not possible. So, outside of that, I think we have to acknowledge that if your wife were to stop earning an income that's going to be a decrease in the financial income for your family. Now, is that something that you should do? I think if it's part of, it's very much kind of a matter of vision and lifestyle and a question of, is there an investment into our family that can be made up for it? So you can minimize the financial impact in some ways, right? So I will frequently help people do an analysis of a second income. If you have one income, let's say that your income is higher and she's still working, but her income is lower. If you actually look and you say, how much is is it costing her to work? Um, You can say, well, she's working, um, uh, she's, uh, she's, paying the highest marginal tax rate on her income. We have all these work-related expenses, et cetera, then you can mitigate the and say maybe it's not as big of a loss as just her gross income number, but it is still going to be a decline. So you have to feel like you're getting something else out of it. You have to feel like you're getting a lifestyle improvement for you, a lifestyle improvement for her, a lifestyle improvement for your family, for your children. You have to feel like you're getting some benefit from it um, that makes it worth the money. And that's my conviction is I believe, and my wife would affirm this if she were here, is that for us, it's simply a lifestyle decision. Part of it is that I would not be able to do the things that I can do if we had to manage my job and her job. Part of what I already said, so I'm focused on the deal I made with her is I'll take care of the money. I'll make sure that you're rich. I'll make sure that you have everything that you need for the rest of your life. You take, you be part of my family and come along with me. And that for her was not a high cost because she was never, my particular wife was never, never had a strong career ambition. She didn't have a career that was important to her that she wanted to build, uh, et cetera. So that she was good with that. It was a good deal for her. It's a good deal for me. But it's also a focus on in terms of the kind of family life that we want to have. Uh, we don't. We never wanted to have one child. Well, one child you could do it. Five children, a little different, right? Um, so you want to build a certain career, and also we see it as an investment into our children. So one major part of 
my goals in life and 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 our family vision a huge part of it has to do with building a dynasty that's a very very important component of 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 my life vision is to build a dynasty and to impact and build the kind of family dynasty that I'll be proud of when I'm 100 years old and the kind of family dynasty that will impact the world and I can't get that unless I put in place a system where I can I can see to the needs of my children in a really strong way. And so uh, the investment, you know, right now as I record this, my wife is is doing Fun Friday with the children. And they're, they've done schooling all week. They've done all kinds of things. And yet she's still there with them. And she's training them. And she's working with them. We don't have a perfect family. We have many challenges. But she's She's laser focused on that, and that's an incredible part of it. So if you look at the psychological problems that adults have and you trace them back, so much of that stuff is formed in childhood. And so when you look at it from an early education perspective, um, when you look at the the values that are formed in children, you look at the vocabulary that is formed in children, you look at the academic ability that is formed in children, you look at the the emotional security that is formed in children— those things are best formed with a close relationship with parents. And if you believe that, if you're convinced of that, that's part of your family decision, then it's not a matter of a financial question. It's a matter of this is the lifestyle we want. This is what we want for our family. Now, you do need to be very conscious of the cost, right? If your wife did, if your wife stopped her job, it comes with a couple of big costs that make her very vulnerable. Number one is if she... If she stops earning an income, she's entirely dependent and your family is entirely dependent on your ability to earn an income. And so you need to be make sure that you are a man who is worthy of that, of that responsibility. You need to make sure you have a decent income and that your income that you have a strong growth potential for your income. You need to make sure your income is properly protected for her, disability income insurance, life insurance, prudent financial management. It will come with a significant cost for her in her career, depending on what her vision is. If she's in a career and she takes you know, six years out of a career and she comes back, she will, from a career perspective, she'll be behind her peers who didn't take time off out of the workforce to raise children. Uh, if she is a longer-term uh, mother and she let's say she takes 10 years out it'll make it'll make a huge difference in her lifetime earnings it'll make a huge difference in her relevance in the career field etc so there are substantial costs for her if she made that decision and you have to be convinced that those costs are worth it and that this is something that 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 you want as a couple and that you are that you are uh, committed to and it's part of your lifestyle for me I've never imagined it any other way. I wouldn't do it any other way. Um, I love, as I have stated publicly for it, I love the lifestyle that comes with the decisions that we have made. But it's not something that is without cost. It very clearly is, and it needs to be something that's your conviction and her conviction and kind of your shared vision as a family of what you want and the kind of lifestyle that you want. Um, then... In, and and not just oh, okay, kind of a random thing. I think it's a pretty good deal for her if if you're the kind of man who could do it. My wife has a great deal. It's funny. I, I posted a a uh, uh, 
a tweet Alex Hormozzi tweeted out. I think he said something like, uh, "Marrying rich is the least discussed, you know, pathway to passive income." <laughs> and I've often thought about that. Like, that it's 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 kind of funny, right? We but we don't discuss it. I've often thought to myself that um, marrying marrying rich or marrying someone who wants to stay at uh, a stay at home wife is one of the fastest paths to financial independence, a financial independence lifestyle that it can be. Um, it's hard to it's hard to suggest that as an actual course of action given the the various risks that are involved but i think it's a pretty good deal uh you, you know my wife ever since we had our first child she's had she's never she calls me money bag sheets when she needs money she comes to me and she's got enough any money she has she has no budget she can spend whatever money she wants she just simply has to maintain um, and help pull the home together, and we work hard to make sure she has the support the support that she needs. And I'll I don't intend for her ever ever to have to earn income for the rest of her life. Uh, and so it can work into a really great teamwork scenario, but it is one of those things that is very you got to be very careful in the modern world where there's a very big. Uh, difference in vision. You have to recognize that if your wife does that, it does expose her to some significant, it makes her vulnerable, more vulnerable. And so you have a responsibility to honor her and to protect her in that and to make sure that she's going to be better off if she does that than not. And this is where it's especially difficult. Um, Marriage, family relationships are very difficult for men and women in 2022 because she has to think very carefully about making herself vulnerable in that way. And it and come to come to the decision. So that was kind of a deep question. Let me say one more thing and then I'll let you respond. I would make all those things independent of the comments that I said about, you know, maintain your income, et cetera, unless there was something unique to your situation about it. And the reason is, uh, so for example, let's say that you are, have a bunch of debt and right now you're trying to get out of debt and you're trying to figure out how to solve that. And you're five months away from getting out of debt. Well, yeah, keep her income for the next five months so you can get out of debt. But in terms of macro conditions of the economy or, or what might or might not have in the next few years, I don't think we can plan those things with enough certainty to actually make personal decisions on them. So, you know, if I knew recession was coming, would I, uh, would I, Delay marriage. No, just get married, right? If I knew recession was coming, um, would I, and my wife wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, or we wanted to have a baby, would I delay having a baby? I wouldn't. I would just have a baby. How do I know recession is coming? How do I know? We don't have any clue, any, any certainty of that. And these things, these lifestyle decisions are too important to to rely upon what might happen in the future from a macroeconomic space. If I knew recession was coming, would I not go and and change a jobs uh, or start a business? In the macro scale, no. If I knew that that interest rates were going to triple, would I go and start a mortgage business? No, I wouldn't. But but that's but in, would I not go and pursue a job? No, I pursue it. You want to live your life and focus on pressing forward. And as long as you're you're generally in a good, prudent space where you've got most of what you need handled, then I think it just makes sense to to press forward and ignore the economy. Great. I mean, I think that the, that last little bit that you said um, about making the decision independent of any kind of forecast about what the economy is going to do, it's exactly where I was on it, too. Um, my phone shut off in the middle of it. I'm, I was outside in Texas and got a, a heat warning on the phone and it just shut off. But uh, so I'll go back and listen to, to the entire uh, 
comments that you made, but just to address a few of the things there at the end, um, from a security perspective, that, that was one of my main concerns too. You know, just going from two to one, one is a lot closer to zero income mm-hmm. than two is. Um, but I, I've had a really stable career for my first 10 years, um, post-college with the same company. I've had a, a, a promotion like every two years for the last 10 years. Um, and they, I mean, the most recent one was like a month ago. So I doubt they're going to lay me off. Um, and then we've got just a, just a stupid amount of cash that we've just held for no real reason. I thought I was going to buy some kind of income property and just hasn't come up. And so we've got like 200 grand in the bank right now, but if we were to go through with this plan, we would sell our, one of our homes, move the other one. And we'd have like 400,000 in cash, which is like five years worth of cash living fat. You know, so there's just really not a lot of financial risk in my mind. Um, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think you have any financial risk from this. The biggest risk would be for her. Is she, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, and, and that's what I spent some time talking about is, is her career something that's very important to her, right? Is it a sacrifice for her to leave her career or is it just a job? Because if it's a career yeah. that she says, I've got this 30 year vision of where I want to be in this career 30 years from now, the biggest cost to her, if she were to leave her, her job is not the income. The biggest cost to her is five years of lost advancement and experience in the career. And so you want to weigh those costs because those are big costs for her. Um, and, and they need to be carefully considered and make sure that, yeah, this is something that, that, that she wants and that she has a vision of. And it's definitely not something you, it needs, I think it's as your, as a husband, it's your, your job to share a vision and to share what you see as a family, right? And say, hey, here's my proposal. Here's why I think it would be a good idea. But uh, especially in today's world, based upon the situation that she's in, the advice that she'll hear, what her girlfriends will say, et cetera, this is something where she needs to be clear on the benefits and the costs and be sure that this is something that she wants. And it's definitely not something that you would force her uh, force her to do that would be a major mistake. Sure. Totally, totally appreciate that. And that, and, uh, that would change everything if she had a career that she was pursuing and had some kind of 30 year vision of becoming something, but her, that's not, she loves her job. She's a professional. She's a pharmacist. She loves what she does, but she's stated many times that she does not want to be in management. She wants to be as sort of a staff type pharmacist, which I think you can go back and get at the end of being a stay at home mom, whenever you decide to. Yeah. And in that case, I've worked with a lot of pharmacists. You'll just want to look and see, is there, is there a way that, is there something where she does, you know, one or two shifts every two weeks where she can keep, mm-hmm. she keep her connections alive, keep her, her head in the game, keep all of her, her, uh, licensing current and make a little bit of money and just have a little chance to chance to be out of the house, a chance to do something, yeah. do something different. I think that's one of the things that is often challenging is simply because so on like I'm a stay-at-home dad, so I'm super in touch and in tune with this stuff because of how involved I am with my children by by design. Having a job to go to is a wonderful relief from family pressures. It feels so easy once you have been uh, it feels so easy to go to work once you've been a, a full-time father or a full-time mother because it's just an easy thing. You go to work, you do come into your job, eight hours, 10 hours, shift, whatever, you're done and you go. And so having a little break from your home life is, I think, very important. And traditionally, this has generally been provided with community. 
right? You have a community where you have your send your children to school. You have mom can come over and help. You have neighbors. Children can go play outside, etc. One of the things that I think has happened in 2022, uh, meaning just in our current day, is that it's actually become more difficult for you to be a full-time parent because the pressure is much more intense. And here, here, here's what I mean by pressure. Number one, parents find themselves, at least in my observation, with far less community than was once available. Uh, and the community that is available is a very structured community. So if you went back 100 years and you were a new mother and you had a baby at home, there was it was common that in your block where you lived or in your, in your apartment building or you had neighbors around that also had children. But for various reasons, number one, one, one of which being that we have many fewer children in today's day than we've ever had, it's just not, you don't have that many people in your local area that have children. You can go to the suburb somewhere, and yeah, there are some children, but there's not, you know, in a row of 15 houses, there aren't five other mothers with babies. There might be one other mother, and she might have a three-year-old and not a baby. So they're just far fewer families, far fewer children. And then the places that you meet the children, we don't socialize much on a neighborhood basis or on a close geographic location basis. So maybe she goes to a mom's group at her church, but now that's drawing moms from all around a 20-square-mile area. So if she's going to go and take the children and someone's going to babysit for her so that she can have a, a little break, she's got to make it a whole affair and a whole event, right? Got to load up the child, take the, make sure we have the bag all packed with everything the baby needs, and then go over to Susie's house and drop the baby off, and then I got my one hour and go back. It's just not the same kind of thing of a break as when there was more of a neighborhood structure where you had other parents with, with children and they're physically close. In addition... We have, in the modern age, adopted very different standards for what is quality parenting and what is appropriate parenting versus our forebears. So today, you know, my wife and I very rarely are our children out of our sight. Very rarely are we ever physically apart from them. And because we have all kinds of worries, right? We worry about molesters. We worry about them getting hit by a car. We worry about um, all this stuff. And we're constantly viewing everyone around us with suspicion. Well, is that person, you know, a closet pedophile? Is that person a, you know, and you, you have you have all these these fears and concerns that um, previous generations just didn't worry too much about. Now, should they have or should they not have? Obviously, like they should have worried more in some cases. In some cases, we're a little bit overprotective. But even though, you know, I'm into the I'm into the concept of free range kids and, you know, having your children have opportunities and be tested, but you still are super careful. And so where where let's say you went back 100 years, a mother may have said, you know, kids get out of here. It's two o'clock. I don't want to see you till dinner time. And the children go out and they're gone for three hours. That today is considered a form of neglect or abuse. And so parenting is is in some ways a lot more intensive than it once was. I don't want to paint a one-sided picture. There are many ways in which parenting is much easier than it has been in the past. But I do want to acknowledge that these, these things contribute to make it difficult. And these things contribute to making the life of a full-time mother, a full-time father pretty intense. And so having a break, you know, having a day or two 
every two weeks where you go and do some shifts at the pharmacy. If you guys can figure that out uh, with appropriate childcare, with the two of you working together, I think that can actually be something that is a big lifestyle improvement for her where she maintains her, her sense of professional capacity. She maintains her ability to say to others, yeah, I'm a pharmacist. She maintains her, her connections. And then if she decides she wants to go back to being a full-time pharmacist in the future, it's easier because she's, she's still visible and she's not coming in out of the cold. Yeah, totally agree. I made the same uh, recommendation when we were discussing it the other night. I said, you know, you could go on, get a PRN job at a hospital or, or whatever you want to do just to keep your foot in that world if you want to, but you wouldn't have to kind of up to her. Yeah. And the good thing about this is that none of this stuff is, especially with her being a pharmacist, she's highly employable, I would I would think. And so none of this stuff is, is permanent, right? If, she, if you guys try it out as a family and realize this isn't working for us, you can always make a change. It's not hard to get. It's not hard to move it back. You don't have to. You don't have to have the next twenty years planned out today. Just next year or two, and certainly you can afford it. If anything, it could be a nice sabbatical for her and, and an expense, an extended uh, maternity break, which I think is a really welcome, really welcome thing. No doubt. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. Yep, my pleasure. All right, we go to the great state of Utah. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey, Joshua. Um, I have a a pretty simple question compared to the last couple ones. Um, a few weeks ago, or I guess probably a month and a half ago, um, we had talked about uh, a Vanguard life cycle fund and um, some people that were holding it in a non-taxable account and they got stuck with a big tax bill. Mm-hmm. And um, that episode you had mentioned, you thought there were better ways um, to invest money um, than a life cycle fund um, that could provide a little bit more return. And I'm just curious to see... Um, you'd maybe elaborate on that, um, on some options other than a life cycle fund for a non-taxable account. Sure. Well, at its core, my opinion is simply people overestimate the value of bonds in their portfolio and underestimate the value of stocks. And life cycle funds generally operate on a principle of significant increases in the percentage of bonds in the portfolio as compared to the percentage of stocks. So let's begin, keep it very simple, but let's talk a little bit about modern portfolio theory. So in modern portfolio theory, the idea is how can we design a portfolio that gives us the maximum return based upon certain levels of acceptable volatility? Notice I'm using the word volatility. Usually we'll use the word risk, But by risk, we mean volatility, ups and downs in the market and ups and downs in the portfolio. From a retirement planning perspective, as we get closer to retirement and as we are in retirement, generally speaking, because we need more money from our portfolio, we're increasingly less willing to accept volatility. Uh, People get nervous if they've got $2 million to retire on and they got a 25% market drop and all of a sudden they wake up with a million and a half dollars in their portfolio, they get super nervous about that, as they should. And so modern portfolio theory purports to create the most efficient portfolios for every level of accepted volatility. And so the highest returning portfolio will generally be an all-stock portfolio. But the remarkable thing about modern portfolio theory is that they've proven that if you just have a little bit of bonds, yeah, maybe, maybe you give up a little bit of total risk, 
uh, excuse me, a little bit of total return, but you gain a big, you know, dampening effect with with some with less volatility. So a portfolio of twenty percent bonds and eighty percent stocks isn't doesn't return that much less than a portfolio of 100% stocks and you get a good dampening effect. And then there's the curve, right? The efficient frontier of 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 how how much volatility are we willing to accept? And you go back to the the you know, a 60% bonds and a 40% stock portfolio. So this is this is modern portfolio theory and this is what portfolios are built on. And that's what a life cycle fund generally does. It says, okay, we're going to start you right now with an 80-20 stock to bond ratio, and we're going to move you steadily towards a 20-80 bond to stock ratio. If you're if, That way, if you're 80 years old, we think that 80% of your money should be in bonds and 20% in stocks. So my complaint about that personally is simply this. I don't buy that that's the right move for most people. And my arguments are simply these. Number one, Volatility is not generally a problem unless you've done poor financial planning. And so retirement planners are usually facing a constraint that the client says, how do I get the most return out of my portfolio possible? Because I've just saved barely enough for retirement. And also that that income has to be totally stable. That's a hard thing to answer, right? If you say, here's $2 million, I want the maximum income, and I'm not willing to accept any ups and downs in my income, you put a planner in a tight spot, and the planner is generally going to take a fairly conservative approach, develop a conservative portfolio that has the highest probability of returning that stable income. But what if you went to the planner and you said, yeah, I'm totally willing to change my spending from time to time if I had to. I just want to have a portfolio that gets as big as possible. Well, you wind up with a different portfolio. So all of, of traditional financial planning that creates these, these portfolios along the, the efficient frontier is built upon the mathematical proposition that you have to have stability of income. And thus, you want to, and you want to maximize the return from the portfolio measured by stability of income. That's the underlying assumption. If you take that assumption out, you could take you could assess a different in a, you could you could make something different happen. Uh, and so it's kind of like this, right? Let me use an example. If you came to me at 60 years old and you said, "Here's 2 million dollars and I need as much income from that money as I can get every single month and I have to have a stable income." you would get a different portfolio than if you came to me at 60 years old and said, I'm 60 years old. I'm never going to spend a dime from this portfolio. I want to leave as much money behind to my children and grandchildren as possible. Do, do, does that make sense that you would get two different different portfolios based on those constraints? Yeah, it does. Okay. So which of them would create the higher return? Well, almost certainly, again, I have to say almost because we don't know what the future and past performance doesn't necessarily indicate future performance, but almost certainly any analyst who looked at that would say you would have far more money in portfolio B because you just said, I want as much money as possible when I'm 90 years old. And you would generally in that scenario, put the money all in stocks because you don't need the stability. You don't need the volatility. You need the total return. So this brings me to, to point number two. So point number one is the, the model is constrained by a presupposition. The presupposition is I need stable income to last and I need to maximize the income from my portfolio and need to last for the rest of my life. So point number two is this. 
I believe that the reason stocks outperform bonds is quite simply that owners get richer than lenders. Owners of companies get richer than people who lend money to companies. And at its core, that's the difference between stocks and bonds. Stocks represent ownership in a company, and bonds represent lending money to a company. Owners get richer than lenders. And so while I certainly wouldn't make a forward-looking statement such as stocks always outperform bonds because it's not true, meaning we don't know the time period, but on the whole, I don't see how in a long period of time it would ever be possible for a bond portfolio to ever outperform a stock portfolio. That's why bonds have lower returns because they're lending money to companies. And that's those are good and useful terms. You know, bonds are wonderful, right? If you're running an insurance company and you have to mathematically be certain that you can pay the claims of your insureds, then you're going to have a portfolio with a lot of bonds in it because you can get a good return with good stability. But I don't want just a good return. I want a great return so I can maximize my lifestyle, which leads me to point number three. I believe that it's better and easier to train an investor to be comfortable with volatility than it is to train than it is to, to kind of create <laughs> what metaphor to use. I want to train an investor to be comfortable with volatility and then make sure that the financial plan reflects that rather than indulging the ignorance of the investor. Um, think of it like this. Use an airplane example. If you is it better is it easier for you to build an airplane that will never bounce up and down in the air and the wings will never waggle on it or is it easier to simply train somebody to say an airplane bouncing up and down in the air is not a big deal and the the wings are waggling or wagging and, and wiggling because that's how you that that's how metal works and that's how that's just fundamentally how the physics of metal work I remember one of the first airplane flights I was on uh, with my dad, and I looked out the window, and I saw the wings wagging up and down. And I said, Dad, isn't that a bad thing that the wings are wagging up and down? I said, Joshua, if the wings didn't wag up and down, the whole plane would fall apart because you can't create rigidity, perfect rigidity, and have something strong. And so the fact that the wings wag, that's just how it works. And for the rest of my life, it's always been normal. And so I explained to my children what airplane turbulence is. It's like we're just hitting waves. It's no difference. And so then when you're, when you're on an airplane and the, the plane is bouncing up and down, it's generally not that big a deal, right? There can be, of course, indications where you, you drop a 1,000 feet in an air pocket or something, but it just doesn't matter. It's just turbulence. The plane is built for it. This is how flying works. So it's easier to educate someone about how flying works than it is for you to try to create some totally new technology where they can have a silky smooth flight and not see the wings bouncing up and down. So in investing, our job is to educate investors to be comfortable with volatility, an appropriate amount of volatility based upon their goals, but not to indulge the investor's ignorance and the, and the investor's irrational fears of volatility. So I would rather spend time educating, so it's this classic thing with risk profile questionnaires. Um, as a financial advisor, the way that you protect yourself from liability and the way the company protects itself from liability is to do risk profile questionnaires. And these risk profile questionnaires create a, a written record that the investor has considered the effects of, of 
market conditions on his investments, and he's telling you, here's the kind of portfolio that's suitable for me. And while you can push somebody a little bit, generally speaking, at least when I used to give risk profile questionnaires, I just gave them. I didn't try to educate someone, right? I just, I, I need to know what they, what they say. But now here you face, as, an, as a financial planner, let's say the person gives it back and they say, yeah, I'm not comfortable with swings in the value of my portfolio. There, there can be multiple reasons why an investor may not be comfortable with it. One reason might be that their, the investor's budget doesn't allow for swings in a portfolio. I've got $3,000 a month, and I've got $3,000 a month of, of bills, and if I don't have $3,000 a month, I'm going to get kicked out of my house. You don't, can't afford any volatility. But then the other thing is just the, the emotions of the investor. They might be the kind of person who's just not comfortable with volatility. So let's say that somebody fills out an investor profile questionnaire. They hand it back to you as the investment advisor, and you see that they're not comfortable with the swings in the portfolio. What do you do? What's the right thing to do? Do you try to, do you just take them and say, yeah, you're not comfortable with turbulence on an airplane, so let's just make sure you don't ever fly? Or do you say, should I try to educate you to be comfortable with volatility? And that's a really hard thing because I think it's generally the duty of a financial advisor to seek to educate that person to be comfortable with volatility, but that can come back to bite you because now you might educate the person into accepting a more volatile portfolio, then things go down, they freak out, they sell, and now you screwed up the whole thing. And so a lot of times you just kind of quietly accept it and you let the client steer you instead of you steering the client because it just feels easier and it feels like, well, I'm listening and I'm, I'm respecting their wishes. Well, my goal is I want to educate the investor to be comfortable with volatility, and then I want to build a financial plan that accounts for it. And so if there's no way in the world where you can have somebody with a 50-year investment time horizon, which we'll get to that in a moment, and them not be better off 50 years from now with, with owning a bunch of stocks versus owning a bunch of bonds. Next point, i got to move faster. People dramatically underestimate the, the, the risk of inflation versus the risk of volatility. They underestimate it. Inflation is a huge enemy with regard to investing. A normal 3% inflation rate is devastating to someone on a fixed income, let alone a 9% inflation rate. So the only way you can outstrip inflation is to have investments that are significantly outperforming it. And so I believe that it's more important to, for an investor to maintain a, a, their lifestyle than it is to maintain than it is to maintain their portfolio balance, right? You need the lifestyle. And so over the long time horizon, it's really important that we have a portfolio that's very tilted towards stocks and very non-tilted towards bonds. Next point, people underestimate their actual time horizon. So if you're 50 years old and you're planning a retirement plan, I think you need to plan for a 50-year retirement. Certainly there's some people who will die at 70, but it's very probable that once some that a significant portion of people at 50 today will wind up with a 50-year income. And so you need the power of stocks. And so I'm continually trying to push people more into stocks and less into bonds for these reasons. So a retirement plan in a in a in a static retirement uh, age date fund that is systematically pushing people more and more into bonds is is just antithetical to what I think matters. And then the final point is this. Let's say that you're successful as a financial advisor in getting someone to invest heavily in stocks. And let's say that you have enough time 
for those stocks to do their work. Let's say that you get someone into, into a heavy stock portfolio, say at 50 years, 55 years old, and then at 75, they're still in a heavy stock portfolio. And let's assume that we've had good performance in the stock market. Well, now the person has far more money than they otherwise would have had if they had gone heavy into bonds to protect the volatility. And so now that they're richer, now they can actually afford to take more risk with stocks because they don't they have a lot, much bigger portfolio and as long as they're no, they don't need to maximize the income from the portfolio the money can grow more and so now we look at it and say hey you're 75 years old um but I would have no fear at all. Let's say somebody comes and says, you know, I've got $10 million in a portfolio. I spend $100,000 a year. I would keep a 75-year-old, or I would at least want to keep, if it were my dad and he was 75 years old in those, that example, I would tell dad, dad, be all in stocks, right? 100% in stocks. Because now I'm thinking about what can the portfolio be worth when you croak at 100 versus what would happen if you went heavily into bonds. There's no reason for you to go heavily into bonds if you got $10 million and you need to spend $100,000 a year. The stocks are fine. And so now you can, you're richer because you, because you took a stock portfolio instead of a bond portfolio. You're now richer. So now you can afford to deal with more volatility even though you're older and your whole family can benefit from the increasing growth. So with the exception of somebody who needs a totally stable portfolio so they can maximize their income because they don't have enough money for retirement, I try to get people to move a portfolio more in favor of stocks versus bonds and ignore ever getting to this rate to the position where you've got a 60% portfolio in bonds and a 40% portfolio in stocks. And then I try to solve with just good what I call financial planning, meaning make sure you're flexible with your expenses so that and make sure you have cash on hand and solve the volatility problem with that and then educate the person to be willing to stick through during the difficult times versus the the you know bailing on the portfolio because the the market went down 30%. So you said you were going to give me an easy easy question and it's not an easy question for those reasons but that's why I say there's nothing wrong with a target date retirement fund but I don't like it. That that's perfect. That was uh, the airplane example is a good example. It's easy to understand. So for someone who has been investing in life cycle funds, um, what how's the best way to go about transitioning out of that? Um, you know, to 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 get away from a, a large percentage in bonds. Well, don't do anything because a random guy on the internet tells you to do it. That's first of all. Um, make sure that you understand and for it's your, for yourself because it's your money and you care about it more than anyone else's. So you need to be more educated on it than anyone else's. So take what I've said and then do, you know, read a dozen books on investing uh, and see if you still believe what I've said is true after you read a dozen books on investing and portfolio management at whatever level you wish to engage in that. Then if you are sure about that, what you do is you sit down and you say, what is my desired portfolio at this stage in my life? And you always need to build a portfolio based upon your goals. What are my goals for the money? So if this is my 20-year money, you'll have a different portfolio than my three-year money. So back to my example. If you're using a a target lifecycle fund as a college savings account for your 16-year-old, that's not a wrong move. It would be a little, they do have funds for that. But basically the idea is that 
having volatility with money that you definitely need to pay for your 18-year-old's college, that's a good time to have money out of stocks. So there's a reason why we say don't invest money in stocks that you're going to need in the next five years because we can't predict the volatility in the next five years. And if we have a 30% market drop or a 50% market drop on the college money that you need for your 18-year-old, that doesn't work. So you need to apply your personal financial planning to your portfolio and put names and goals on your different funds. Then if you wind up with a portfolio and you say, hey, here's a million dollars over here, it's currently invested in a target date retirement fund that currently has a 37% exposure to bonds. And I think what I'd like to do is actually move to say a 90-10 portfolio. Then you simply sell the funds and you move it into new funds that will allow you to have your 90-10 portfolio split. And then you need to consider the tax consequences because some of these are in tax-advantaged accounts and and not. And so you consider the tax consequences and figure out kind of what what those costs are and make sure it's still a smart move for you to do. And then usually you'll locate your bonds inside of your retirement accounts and you'll locate your stocks outside of your retirement accounts to the extent that you have to locate those assets differently. Excellent. That's great. That's perfect. Good. Anything else? Um, Yeah. So my wife and I kind of have accounts spread across a a handful of things. You know, my 401k, my wife's 401k, um, and then uh, IRAs. And is there a good way to 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 kind of keep track of those all together in terms of allocating a portfolio? Would you use one account for you know one specific? part of the portfolio and another account for another part or would you do an even distribution of parts of the portfolio in each of those accounts if you will put the numbers down on a piece of paper of what what accounts you have how much is in them and then you'll put your goals down of what you want to own why you want to own it and then look at them there's probably a fairly obvious way to set it up so that kind of question, I can't, and I'm not willing to answer in specificity here, um, but but it's it'll probably be apparent to you once you sit down and actually just, just look at it. Uh, having two 401ks and two Roth IRAs and two taxable accounts is probably not that big of a deal, especially when you're looking at, uh, when you're primarily owning mutual funds, as you probably are in most of those accounts. So the key is, if you put them down, I I am slightly sidestepping your question, but if you just write down your goals, it'll probably be obvious. And so let me just give you one example. Uh, If you said, you know what, I want to have a portfolio that is, I want to put 80% of my money into um, index stock mutual funds. I want to put 10% of my money into bond index funds, and I want to put 10% of my money into speculative accounts where I'm going to speculate on single stocks and I'm going to speculate on on things that I'm interested in. Then you look at your portfolio and you've got $300,000 at um, your primary 401k. You got um, $200,000 at your secondary 401k. You've got $50,000 in a Roth IRA, and you got another, you know, hundred thousand dollars in a Roth IRA. Well, the natural answer would be, uh, and I can't, I didn't do my numbers right. I'm making this up on the spot, but uh, you would say, okay, 
this $50,000 Roth IRA, this is going to be my speculative account. So I'm going to take this to a brokerage company where I can easily speculate. I can play whatever trades I want to play from this account. And this is my play money account. Then we'll go ahead and put our 10% of bond allocation into our secondary 401k because they've got a good bond fund available to us. And then the balance we'll put in stock mutual funds across the other three accounts. So if you lay out your goals of what accounts you want and why and what your goal is for that account, and then you look at what the options are that's avail- that are available to you, you, it should be obvious, right? It's obvious that you, you're not going to speculate in your 401k because generally you're not going to have access to single stocks. Um, you're going to want that just to be one of your mutual fund accounts where they have a good fund. Hey, here's a good, good index mutual fund. Whereas you put your speculation inside of your individual brokerage account or your Roth IRA with the brokerage where you can do the kinds of trades that you want. So just put it on paper, write out your goals, put out your macro, your macro uh, allocation. And then, meaning I want 5% of my money in gold, I want 5% of my money in Bitcoin, I want 10% of my money in bonds, and I want 80% of my money in stocks. Okay, whatever your macro allocation is, then look at your more detailed allocation. If you need, okay, if I want to do stocks, do I need to follow a more diversified plan? Do I want to put a total stock market index fund? Uh, Do I want to have a certain portion in the United States versus other countries? And, And then follow whatever goal you lay out and look at the accounts through the lens of your goals. Excellent. That's great advice. Thanks, Joshua. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. And I believe that brings us to the last phone call of today. I'll just give you kind of my closing uh, discussion here, uh, simply that uh, that same advice applies to any of us, meaning that the definition for what you should do with your money always is going to come down to your goals. And those goals need to be personal. So a goal of beating the market is irrelevant. A goal of having a certain amount of money to retire is relevant. And I I should have said this when I was answering the question, but there are reasons to minimize volatility. Uh, you know, so there are good reasons where someone might say, I don't want to take any volatility because maybe I don't need it, right? The same person with the $10 million and the $100,000 income, that person might not have any desire for the money, in which case minimizing the volatility might be, might be a, a useful thing. I don't think that a bond portfolio is by definition safer than a stock portfolio, at least a well-diversified stock portfolio, which is why I'm avoiding using the words risk and safe. Uh, I think it's just simply less volatile. And a bond, bonds have their own sets of safety risks. And so you have to be more precise and defined. But the key is always going to be your goals. And if you're wondering what to do with your money, the answer is usually, in my experience, clarify your goals. And if you'll make your goals clear and say, this is my goal, and then put those goals on a piece of paper in front of you and then look at your balance sheet, then or your income statement or whatever it is that your financial document you're looking at then if you compare your goals to your money the 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 answer to your money question will usually be obvious if somebody doesn't know what to do with their money i don't spend a lot of time talking about what they could do i try to focus on what their goals are and if your goals are clear then generally the next steps are fairly obvious. And that applies on the macro level. Uh, and it also applies on the specific you know, account location level or, or type of particular assets that I want to invest in. 
So if you're wondering about something, get clear on your goals and then go back and tackle your financial question. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to join me on next week's Q&A call, go to Patreon, search Radical Personal Finance. I would love to have you with me next week.